As you remain standing, I invite you to hear the gospel reading for us this morning from Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40. Hear these words. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Most holy and gracious God, Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this moment of worship and for this time of deep discipleship. And Lord, as we enter into this time, we ask for you to open our hearts, our minds, and our ears so that we may be attentive to you. Turn out the distraction of our day and our lives so that we may focus entirely upon your word and what you have for us. Lord, make me less so that you may be more. And may the words of my heart and meditation of my soul be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We just finished a series on the Apostles' Creed, and I hope one of the things you got out of that series is that there are some things that we all hold together, right? There's some basic beliefs, basic tenets of faith, basic creedal statements that we all hold together that claim to be apostolic in their faith. And what I mean by apostolic, I mean right teaching. We all have what I like to call those R-S-T-L-N-E answers. And what I mean by that is one of my favorite game shows is Wheel of Fortune. And if you know on the bonus round of Will and Fortune, they once you spin the wheel to see whatever prize you're probably not going to win that day, they, you pick that prize, and the first thing that Pat Sajak does, he tells you, well, here's your R-S-T-L-N-E answers. And it happened because everyone who would go to the bonus round would always say that those letters that they want to get on that board was R-S-T-L-N-E. And so they got so tired of everyone just saying the same old thing that they said, well, Here's your first RSTLNE answers, and then you get three other letters. All of us in the Christian faith have the RSTLNE. I believe in God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. Those things that we have professed over the last few weeks and the things that we professed in our affirmation of faith earlier, but there are things that make us different. There are things that make every denomination different. And I'm not talking about what hymnal you use or what color the carpet is or if the pastor wears a stole or not. I'm talking about things that within its general body make it distinct, that make it stand out, that make it a little unique. Now, a lot of us, we might think, well, shouldn't we all be on the same page? Shouldn't all of us worship the same, sing the same, read from the same Bible, 
have the same type of pastor, have the same type of mission, have the same type of this or that. We all think that there should be some conform, you know, conformality or some uniformity within our faith, but how boring would it be if every church was the same? If every church looked the same, thought the same, acted the same, worshiped the same, or did the same, we would all be trying to reach the same people, but not everyone can be reached in the same manners or in the same way. What might reach you might not reach someone else. What might reach me may not reach someone else. Does distinctiveness help us to stand out? But they also help us to see things a little bit clearer about faith. My first appointment, I, I used to use the example of a basketball. I was in Kentucky after all, and they didn't know what a football looked like, so I had to use a, use a basketball quite often. If you look at a basketball, what you see different lines, right? You see the lines that go around the decorative orb. You see perhaps if it was made by Wilson or Champion. You see that the signature on it. Really? I don't need the steps that bad. Golly, that Fitbit's going to be the end of me one day. If you're in my Bible study, you know that thing goes off every time I pray. And it says, I don't know what the answer is to that prayer. Neither do we sometimes. <laughs> but if you look at that basketball, you can see it from different perspectives if you're looking at it from one side. But if you're looking at it from a different side, you might see something else. You might see where to put the nozzle in for the air when the ball has no air in it. Or you might see that the, it's a little bit faint on the orange because the ball's a little bit old and we haven't been able to replace it. It's still the same ball. It's still eligible to play use for basketball, even though I can't shoot very well. But it helps us to see things a little different if we see things from a different side or a different perspective. That's what our distinctiveness allows us to do. See things from a different perspective that can help all of us grow in faith. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that makes us distinct? What is our side of that basketball or our unique answers to the Wheel of Fortune puzzle that makes us stand out as Wesleyan and as Methodist? And if you're wondering, well, why is it so important for us to focus in on that? Here's why. In a time of deep division, in a time when we're all trying to wrestle with who's actually Wesleyan, who's actually not Wesleyan, was it really mean to be the church? Reclaiming our distinctiveness can help us to be centered in who we are and what God calls us to be. And I truly believe as we reclaim what it is that is distinctive about the Methodist movement, we can be deeper in the church and our love of God. And so we start with this passage that's going to lead us into one of the most important distinctiveness in a moment. And this passage is one of those hallmark bullet point passages, one of those passages that all four of the gospel writers, well, three of the synoptics talk about. It's called the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew and Mark put it in the same context as we saw in our scripture reading, which we'll talk about in a little bit more in a moment, but Luke has it in a different context. 
Luke's context doesn't come in the midst of teaching in the temple courts or teaching with the Pharisees and the Sadducees so much as he uses it in this questioning as a way to teach the deeper meaning of how to love your neighbor. And so in Luke's gospel, it comes in the context of coming in right before the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the question of what does it mean to love God and love your neighbor in a practical way? Well, in Matthew and Mark, the context is one of Jesus is in the temple. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, the Passover celebration that would lead to his arrest, his death, and his resurrection. And as he's in the temple, as he's sitting and he's preaching, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to question him. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two religious groups of, within the Jewish faith of the time that had different views on the resurrection. The Pharisees believed that the resurrection was possible. The Sadducees did not, and they often fought over that very topic along with others. Well, each of them joined together, even though they were kind of opposing groups, they joined together in this attempt to try to trap Jesus. They wanted to trap him in order to prove to the population that he wasn't someone to follow. And so in the context of our passage, there's been test after test after test to the point where now we get this lawyer who comes up to talk to Jesus. Now, this lawyer is not like what we think, someone that's coming in to advocate on the side of the prosecution and the defense. This lawyer, in this sense, is kind of like a, a biblical scholar, someone that knows the law and is willing to interpret it. And this teach this lawyer, this scribe, this scholar comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important commandment out of all 613 commandments in the Old Testament? Some of them positive in nature, some of them negative in nature. What's the most important? They're trying to trap Jesus in the same arguments that they're having themselves of what's the most important of all of these. Because if Jesus was to lean on one side or the other, they could say, ha ha, he's not someone you can trust. So Jesus responds. And he responds in a way that was kind of similar to the conversations of that time by looking at two of these passages, one from Deuteronomy 6 and one from Leviticus 19. And he says, first... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first commandment. It's a passage that comes to us from Deuteronomy 6, 5, that is part of a deep prayer that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, would pray every day called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, that the Lord is one. That's the first part of that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It is a prayer that you pray twice a day to remind yourself that God is holy, that God is powerful, and that God is with you. And so as you pray this prayer, you're reminded to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. That idea of love is agape, and that idea of agape is to be committed be connected. And so what we get out of that sense is that our deepest commitment, our deepest focus, our deepest hope is not to love ourselves, but to love God. 
to love in a deep commitment, to love in a deep way that we remain connected to God, that everything about us is about this deep love and passion for God. And our whole being, everything that we do, everything that we strive for, everything that we yearn to be is to love God. Jesus says that's what's most important. Love the Lord your God with everything you have, everything you do, everything that you seek to do. But he said the second is important too. And there he goes to this line from Leviticus 19.18 in the moral codes. That because your Lord is holy, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Because of who God is, because of what God has done in your life, you should be as committed to them as you are to God. To be committed and connected to your neighbor and to remain with them. Now, the neighbor in that verse is not the person that lives next to you on whatever drive or whatever street or whatever avenue you live on. The neighbor in that passage is not necessarily the people that go to your same church or are in the same denomination. The neighbor is anyone that has the love of God imprinted on their heart. And if you think about Genesis 1.27, that reminds us that we are all created in the image of God. Our neighbor is every person. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they look like. We are called to love each other as God calls us to love and to be committed to living with a sense of love and dedication to one another. Commitment of love and understanding and sticking with it with one another and God is at the heart of the great commandment, as is it is with our first of our distinctives, this thing called the general rules. Now, whoever thought you would go to church and hear a sermon on general rules or things called rules? But they're important for us. Wesley and John, both John and Charles Wesley created this thing in the earliest movements of the Wesleyan movement in the 1740s, specifically 1743, after the movement was first starting to get off the ground. They had organized the movement into classes, into societies and bands. The society would be like all of us, the whole church gathering together to worship, to praise, to hear preaching, to celebrate in the communion, and to be with one another in the worship of God. The classes were a little smaller in nature. They were about 12 people or so, different mixture of people, different aspects, where you would get a ticket to come in and have a conversation, ask how it is with your soul, Go around and offer money to help the poor and the forgotten. Learn and study the scriptures together, but also ask each other, how's it with your soul? How can we be there for each other? And then also making sure that the pastor knows what's going on in the class and making sure that they know prayer requests and all that stuff. The bands came in as a small group of about three or four that would 
lock arms with each other to say, we are going to be committed to you. We are going to be your live or die, and we're going to stay with you, and we're going to love you, and we're going to be committed to you. And we're going to make sure that you have someone that you can depend on. The whole system was a way to make sure that we stayed in love of God and in love of our neighbor. But Wesley looked out the people and he said, you know, we need to have some ground rules for people when they come in so that they look like they actually want to be the church. And so the general requirement for anyone, as Wesley wrote in a plain account of Christian of the people called Bethes, was for you to have a desire to flee from the wrath to come and repent of your sin. To flee from the wrath to come and to repent of your sin. That was the basic groundwork to just get you into the door. But then Wesley said, we expect you to be able to show fruit of your faith. Now that doesn't mean that we earn our faith by what we do. It's reversed. That because of our faith, we show elements of it, a fruit of it by what we do. That our life is lived in response to our faith in God. Not as a way to earn our salvation, not as a way to prove our salvation, but for our love to be worked out in our actions. And so Wesley set up these general rules for us to live out our love together. And the basic of our general rules are these three common principles that we probably have all heard quoted from time to time. Do no harm. Do good. Remain in the ordinances of God. Do no harm. Do good. Maintain the ordinances of God. Now, what in the world is Wesley saying in those three? It's nice to say those things. It's nice bumper sticker. We like to wear that as a t-shirt to say, hey, I'm going to commit myself to not doing harm. Well, what does it mean to do no harm? What does it mean to do good? What does it mean to stay in the ordinances of God? And why is it so important? So Wesley said to do no harm isn't about going out to your neighbor and treating them like you were watching WWE last night and hitting them with a steel chair or you know, treating them like a Penn State football player. Not that I'm bitter about that game at all. But to do no harm means I'm not going to do anything to you that I wouldn't want to do to myself. Doing no harm means that we don't go out acting like a drunk or a fool simply because we have the means to do it. Doing no harm means that we pay attention to what we purchase and what we buy to make sure that it's actually ethical of what we purchased. Doing no harm means that on the Sabbath, we don't just come to church to rush to get to our, our job or to get to the next things that we have to do, like buying the groceries, mowing the grass, all of this stuff that we actually take it as a time to rest and to give praise of God throughout the day. Doing no harm means that we don't go around talking bad about each other behind their backs and whispering and gossiping. In the Doing no harm means that we don't try to harm each other with our words or our actions or spread misinformation on Facebook or believe the worst in each other. 
at the very basic principle of do no harm is how do we seek to love each other in a way to advance each other's lives? So what about doing good? We care for the poor, Wesley said. We care for the forgotten. We pick up our cross daily and seek to live in obedience to God in all that we do. We seek to give of ourselves. We seek to not hoard up treasures on earth, but pass it off to others so that they may know God's love. We seek to live a legacy with someone so that they may know God's love. The third is to maintain the ordinances of God. Now, you probably have heard it said in another way of remain in the love of God or stay in the love of God. That's a paraphrase from a from Bishop Reuben Job in a book that he wrote about the general rules. But in Wesley's original language, it was to remain in the ordinance of God. And the reason for the ordinance of God was so that we would stay in love with God. That we would commit ourselves to doing things that would enable us to stay in our love of God. Things like coming to worship. Things like listening to the pastor and the preaching. Things like going to Bible study. Things like praying, reading scripture, coming together at the table for communion. All these things enable us to remain in the love of God by keeping our focus not on ourselves, but on God. Wesley thought that they were so important that they've been in our discipline since the very beginnings of the church. The ground rules of our faith, the ground rules of our distinctiveness is based on this principle that because we love God so much, that because we love each other so much, we're going to promise each other that in this church, we're not going to do harm to each other. That in this church, we're going to love each other by trying to do good. In this church, we're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to read scripture. We're going to ask, what in the world was it that the pastor said that was important for me? And we're going to find ourselves at the table. Wesley was so committed to this and believing that it was so important for us in our church. They said, you know, we're going to help you to do this. But if you keep making a mess of the church, if you keep coming in and not following the rules, we're going to show you the door because we believe that this is so important. Because we also believe that doing no harm, loving God by doing good and staying in the love of God helps us to love God and love our neighbor. And helps us to remember that that great commandment is not just this pie in the sky ideal that would say, where we say, oh, that's a nice ideal, but we can't live that out today. Yes, we can. Yes, we can love God by keeping our focus at the table and in worship, in scripture and prayer. Yes, we can love God by how we love each other, by doing no harm, doing good, and staying in the commitments of God. So as we approach the table today, as we come to this moment, I want to invite you as we enter into this liturgy, of prayer and forgiveness, 
and recentering. That's what our great thanksgiving is. It is a time of prayer and forgiveness and recentering. I invite you as we pray and we say these words and as we come to the table and you find time to pray afterwards, to think about these three questions. Where have I caused harm to someone in the church? Either knowingly or unknowingly. Where do I need to do better in doing good? And what spiritual practices do I need to take on to help me to remain in the love of God? Let these not be just distinctives that we say, oh, that's nice, those are nice words that we have in the discipline, those are nice words that we put on our shirts. But they're so important for us to love God and love our neighbor, let's live it out. Let's be a people who claim that distinctive. In a time of anger, in a time of division, in a time of distrust, in a time of wondering. Let's take a deeper path and love God by doing no harm, doing good, and staying in love with God. Will you pray for me? Most holy and gracious God, Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your love, for your hope, and your grace. Help us as we gather together remain on our love of you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.